from the oral traditions to scrolls, to the copying of manuscripts, to the time of the invention of the Gutenberg Press. Scripture has been published in more formats and designs and fonts and templates and bindings than any book on the planet. Harry Potter at its zenith, the series sold 450 million copies, perhaps the all-time selling series of any in history. The year of its zenith, the Bible outsold it two to one. In fact, the Bible is not only the best-selling book of all time, it remains the best-selling book every single year. Between 1815 and 1975, Guinness estimates that there are 2.5 billion Bibles that have been published and sold. The Economist extrapolates from that data forward to say that there are approximately 100 million Bibles printed every single year. If you go with those conservative estimates, you can get to 6 billion Bibles in print on the globe at today's date. All of this research is fascinating. When you come to the U.S., 92% of American homes have at least one copy of the Bible, and many have at least three copies. And I would argue in this room we probably have five to six to eight copies of the Bible as American, quote, evangelical, Bible-believing people who are always buying the next format, the next version, translation, the next copy, the next whatever. None of this takes into account the electronic medium of the iPad, the iPhone, the apps, the Google devices, and other fake Bibles that you people use. <laughs> I buy a Bible and wear it out, and then I buy another one. I had a Bible for three years that I had studied the book of Ecclesiastes from the Hebrew text in, and I had made marginal notes in these special uh, pens that I use. And it was a treasured Bible that the oils from my hands made the pages almost translucent. I had used it so much. And one day, returning from the Walter Reed Hospital in Maryland to visit a friend back to D.C., Virginia, I set the Bible on the roof of the car on which I was traveling. And that Bible is somewhere between there and 495 in a ditch under a pile of leaves and decaying. And it took me a long time to grieve that loss. And as a consequence, I started buying Bibles and marking them up and writing in them. And this one has got a long way to go. The binding will fall apart before the, the, uh, I'll be done with it. But I marked them up, and I've got four that are fairly marked up with the intent that when I'm dead, my four children can fight over which one they want. And as each of these Bibles goes into use and starts to fall apart, um, just because I'm a preacher, Bible person, kind of weirdo, I understand that. Why is this book six billion and counting? Why are the scriptures the number one bestseller every year in America alone? Is it just a book to put on a shelf to give at someone's wedding, graduation, at uh, an anniversary, at to have a gold name print that the bookstores love us this time of year. We buy Bibles for people and we, for $4 or more, we stamp their name on it in gold. And um, they put it in their office or on a coffee table or on a bookcase and maybe they even use it. That's a good thing. 
Why is it such an important text? The world misquotes the Bible, takes it out of context, likes to use it against those of us who believe it, and categorically misrepresents what the Bible says. They rarely say, oh, that's exactly what the Bible says. See, we're wrong. The Bible's right. So when we look at how the world uses this document and the words of this document, we see you either align with it or you are polarized with it and you must attack it and try to take it apart and discredit it. But at the same time, in halls of government, in offices where oaths are taken, in justice of peace chambers, when adoption proceedings happen, when men and women of rank and military are promoted, they put their hand on the good book and they swear an oath between God and that principle that they will be true to the words in that document. And yes, some don't like to vow vows and swear oaths, so they make pledges. Why all the interest? Today in Luke chapter 22, we will look at a passage that deals primarily with Peter's betrayal, uh, Peter's denial, but we will also look at one little phrase that Jesus comments about the scripture and why I want you to be thinking about this book that you hold or the electronic version you are looking at and far more than just a text. Let's first begin with Peter and how Jesus predicts his denial. Let me ask you to stand for just a moment and I'll read the first four verses. Verses 31 to 34, Jesus predicting Peter's denial. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he, that's Peter, but he said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. You can be seated. The endearing Simon, Simon can be read a couple of ways. Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Simon, Simon. And there certainly is that aspect of Christ's endearing repetition. But this one is more likely when your mother says your full uh, name. When you hear all three or four of your names bark down the hall of the house, you know it's not a good thing. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. The primary verb is demand. He's come before God the Father and demanded that he have a run, if you will, at Peter. Now, for those of you in community group, and this will draw your mind back immediately to the book of Job, you'll have a chance in your community group to look at those passages in Job and compare and contrast what God allows Satan to do or not to do with Job. Because Satan's accusation to God is, well, does Job fear God for nothing? Meaning, if you didn't do all that stuff for him, he wouldn't fear you. If you took everything away from him, he'd curse you. Thus begins the story of the book of Job. And we see the parallels in the text before us where he's demanded. You here is a plural term, and that is important. Unfortunately, the English language can't always bring everything across. 
But it's not just talking to Peter. And actually, if you read the other gospel accounts, you know that they all are going to say the same thing. They're all in agreement with what Peter is saying. To prison and to death we'll go with you. But the isolation of Peter being, we might call him the first among equals, but Jesus is saying, you all, Peter. And so the plural lends us to understand he's not just talking only to Peter as the one who will deny, because they will all scatter, right? When the light turns on, they will all run and deny Jesus. But he is also pointing out that Peter has a lead role. Luke, who writes both the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, uh, will tell in great detail how Peter becomes the formidable leader of the early church. He's the one after Acts 2 who preaches this incredible sermon. He becomes, in a sense, the leader of the leaders. And until Saul becomes Paul and takes the gospel beyond, Peter will be the loudest voice in Jerusalem for Jews and for those who come to know Christ, largely because he will use him. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. This is the only time the phrase occurs in the Bible. To put it in an idiom that you and I would understand, Satan wants to tear you apart. Satan has demanded of God the Father that he rip you limb by limb, that he tear you to pieces, that he crush you, to pulverize you into nothing. That's the weight of the expression, sift you like wheat. And while Satan is on the one hand demanding, Jesus is on the other hand praying, verse 32, for Peter. This is one of those times we get a little glimpse into the heavenly realms. We don't get a lot of, a lot of information from the Bible but we get some glimpses of the principalities, the powers, the dominions of darkness that we can't see. There is a battle going on that we cannot comprehend between Satan and his minions and against the Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the angels elect good. And they are fighting in a realm we don't comprehend or see or understand. And they're fighting for your souls and mine. For those who have trusted Christ, they're fighting to destroy and crush them, just like Peter. And for those who have not yet come to Christ, they're fighting to get their minions into them. It's a battle we don't understand, and we're not really meant to. But we get a glimpse of it here when Jesus talks about Satan wanting, demanding to sift him. But Jesus, notice, doesn't pray that he won't be sifted. It doesn't say, Peter, I pray that you won't be sifted. Rather, he says, I pray that when you have turned... He knows he's going to deny him. This sifting will happen at some level. And Peter, when that happens, I want you to turn and strengthen your brothers. The word strengthened is a favorite of Dr. Luke. I mentioned it before. It bears repeating. Luke writes more of the New Testament than all the other writers. He writes more than Paul. His language and vocabulary are more robust. He is a doctor by training. He uses a little different approach to things. God's Spirit using the pen of Luke. This word strengthened is a favorite of Luke's. And he'll use it many times. I just want to show you two illustrations. In Acts chapter 14, verses 20 and 21, we read, same author, Luke writing, after they preached the gospel in that city, and they made many disciples, they made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Same word. 
that you'll turn to be strengthened, Peter. And here he's saying they've planted these churches and they're going back through strengthening the souls of the disciples. He continues in Acts 20, 21, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So you've got the same thing, theme that's expanded in great detail. You're going to go through a denial, Peter, and after you've turned from that experience of pain, I want you to encourage your brethren, strengthen your brethren. And later on, Luke will give the same message through Paul in the, gospel, in, in the story of Acts. You go back after you've made many disciples and you encourage them, you strengthen them in their faith. Because why? You're going to go through a lot of tribulation. And we need one another. We use the phrase here, doing community. We need to be in community to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to build us up when we get discouraged, when we fail, when we sin, when we make mistakes, when we deny. And we return, we repent, we respond, we come back, and then encourage one another to keep on in that track. Uh, Lloyd and Bill and I have mentioned many times Luke 9, 51, that is the key passage where Jesus says he turns his face, some of the Bible say, like flint. He's determined to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9, 51. It's a pivotal verse in the storyline of Jesus. He's now, I'm going to face death. And the word there, determined, is the same word strengthened. Uh, Peter, after you've denied me, when you return, strengthen your brothers. In Acts when you make disciples, many disciples in church planting and all over, go back and encourage them and strengthen them in their faith. Jesus is strengthening himself. I am going to Jerusalem to die. And nothing is going to deter me or get me off my mission. Well, Peter is undeterred in his commitment to go with Jesus. Verse 33, Lord, with you I am ready to go to prison and to death. I think Peter understood what that meant. I think Peter was willing to do it. But don't miss something here. The messianic confession that Peter says when Jesus says, who do the people say I am? And they have a little discussion. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, God the Father, and Peter says, uh, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father who is in heaven, you're blessed, Peter, because God in heaven revealed this to you. I think this is a parallel. Because Peter unwittingly says, I'll go to prison and death with you. What's he saying? I get it now. You're going to go to prison. You're going to die. Did Peter fully comprehend that Jesus was Messiah? No. He was beginning to understand it. Did he fully comprehend it? Not until after Acts chapter 2. In Acts 1, they're discouraged and depressed and hanging around wondering what's happened. But by Acts 2, it all changes. And I think we see the same thing now. Peter, this lead apostle, I'll go, I'll go to prison with you. I'll die with you. And I believe every fiber of his human capacity meant it. It wasn't just bravado. I believe he meant it. In Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 12, Luke will record where Peter will be beaten and imprisoned and enchained on two different occasions. And we'll learn from 1 Peter and 2 Peter from the apostle who suffered more at the hands of, of persecution and who is eventually martyred for his faith? Who better to write to us uh, in your sufferings and your afflictions for Jesus Christ? How do you suffer well when you're persecuted? That's the whole story of First Peter. 
when you are persecuted for Christ's sake, how do you endure? My fellow sufferer. And that is our apostle, our friend Peter, who says many things that we might laugh at, but we would have said worse. And he becomes this formidable instrument in God's hand. Well, even though he is determined to go to prison and death, Jesus, in verse 34, reminds him, expresses to him, predicts, you're going to deny me, Peter, for all of your intentions. Very soon, very quickly, and no less than three times, you're going to deny me before this night is over. Now, two lessons here before we continue in the narrative. Number one, we need to see that Christ is praying for Peter. And we need to understand Scripture also teaches he prays for you. He prays for me. Now, if you've not figured it out by now, you know that Lloyd is so right brain, he's about to fall off the edge. And you know that I'm so left brain, I'm about to fall off the other edge. So Bill is our counterweight most of the time. So as a left brain person, um, when I say these words, I'm going to say them with a little caution. I have a little, um, I'm a little nervous talking about envisioning, or can you imagine Jesus doing something? Because I'm a left brain analytic, one, two, three, this is right, that's crazy kind of person. And all God's people said, amen. And all the right brain people said, you're nuts. So there you have it. Um, but I get a little queasy when people say, I saw Jesus, or I saw, or, you know, this, because there's no grounding of authority in it. Now, at the same time, can we not envision a scene with oil lit, reflected faces, and most of the Last Supper gone, and goblets of wine drunk at different levels and some crumbs and unfinished food on the low profile table and these disciples looking at Jesus' face as he's saying these, by the way, his last teachings to them. Can't we, can't we go there and see that? can we see Christ looking at the disciples, making eye contact with them and looking at Peter saying, Peter, before the night's over, three times, you will deny me. Peter, I know your intentions. Peter, Simon, wants to, uh, Simon, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. That when you've turned, now it's not too hard to go there. We can go there and with not too much imagination, making it fanciful, but we can go there. Now where I want you to go is Christ prays for you by name. And why I belabored this a bit is because when you and I get in a cycle of sin and temptation and confession, we're tempted to sin, confess, tempted to sin, confess, over and over again. And we beat ourselves up because we sin so often and we get frustrated because we can't make progress and then we get really deeply into sin and then we go under incredible guilt and, and conviction of God's spirit and then maybe for a while we're living, not sinning so much. But, but it's this, isn't this this ongoing snowball cycle of the spiritual life where we just can't ever seem to, I hate the phrase, get victory over, you know, and stop doing it as much or whatever you want to quantify it. So would it help, here's my question, would it help if you saw Christ interceding for you? All that you'd resist temptation. All that you'd be able to say no. And the beauty of it is not just that Jesus is interceding for you to endure the temptation, but he's inviting you to walk with him. 
It's an invitation not just to not sin, it's an invitation to walk with Christ. Because the invitation to not sin is always self-defeating. Don't do this. If that was all it took, we'd all be perfect. Don't do this doesn't make us any more spiritual. But somehow Christ's Spirit indwelling in us and understanding the power of walking in the Spirit means I've got to be close enough to Christ so that when I'm tempted, I've got the fortitude not in the flesh, but in my relationship with Christ to say, you know what, Christ is interceding on my behalf for me not to do this. And when I fail, because I will, he's ready to forgive me and turn me and use me to strengthen others in their walk. Second lesson from this intercession passage, I think, is that you and I cannot use up God's forgiveness. Again, depending on our backgrounds and how we were raised and our pictures of God, we may think there's a, there's a limit to which someone cannot be forgiven. I remember years ago talking to a young woman, sharing Christ with her, and very long story short, she had gotten an abortion when she was 15. She uh, had a much older boyfriend, and he insisted she abort the child. And her convictions as a little girl were against that. And she was in her 20s at this point, And she knew God could never forgive a person who'd had an abortion. She killed her baby, quote unquote, the word she used to me. And I said, you know, he can forgive you. He does forgive you. You have to be willing to accept that forgiveness and put your trust. And she came to Christ. It was a wonderful experience. But all that part of her life, she believed God could never love me or forgive me because I did something that you're not supposed to do, unthinkable. You can't use up God's forgiveness. Now, for the legalists among us, we get real tight and testy right now. Well, I know some people that have certainly used up their limit. And there's no way in the world God would ever forgive them for their sins. You've just become worse than them. I've just become worse than them. You can't use up his forgiveness. If we could, we're all toast. We're all hopeless and helpless. Now, is that an invitation to go out and sin and exploit it? No. It's an invitation to see Christ interceding for Peter on Peter's behalf that when you deny me, that you're going to turn and be used as a force for good. That when you and I sin, you're going to be turned. I'll forgive you, but that's not the cycle I want you to live in. Temptation, sin, forgive. Temptation, sin, forgive. I want you to have temptation and face it in my strength and my spirit and once in a while succeed in victory and say, I don't have to go there. I'm going to walk closer to Christ. And you know what? You will. And the momentary pleasures of sin begin to pass when we start embracing the deep and rich relationship with Christ. That he loves you. He doesn't want you to live in misery and guilt and shame and embarrassment and sinfulness. He loves you. Enough to die for you. And continues to pray for you even though he's not here physically. Jesus knows your sins, and he knows my sins, and he will always extend grace and mercy to us as we ask for forgiveness. You cannot exhaust it. Well, let's go back to the narrative. Jesus explains how their future is going to change, verses 35 to 38. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. He said to them, but now... But now, 
Whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. Now, Jesus reminds them of the past provisions for the 12. In Luke 9, he sent the 12 out, don't take anything, and I'll take care of you. And then in Luke 10, he sends out 72 disciples with nothing, and he takes care of them. What's he teaching in that situation? You're doing my mission. I'm, send, I'm commissioning you. I'm sending you out. You trust me. You trust where you're going to go. They're going to care for you. If not, you leave them. You remember, you remember those stories. And now he's saying, but now it's different. Now you take the bag, the purse, the sword. You, you go out prepared, in other words. Before you went out, while I was here with my provision. Now I'm going to go suffer and die. And in that meantime, you're going to have to go out and be prepared in a different way. Now the sword illuminates the dire conditions of what's going to happen. And of course, we'll see Peter misuse that sword in just a, a few hours in the way the story unfolds. Um, and there's you wouldn't believe, you might believe, you wouldn't believe what people write about the use of the sword here. It's really quite a waste of time. But... Um, there's a rule in Bible study methodology. We get lost on certain things, and sometimes it's fun, but there's a rule in Bible study. If the plain sense makes common sense, it's foolish sense to seek another sense. If the plain sense makes common sense, it's foolish sense to seek another sense. And a lot of us, me included, like the other sense sometime. I want to know what's really behind that. And when you read the sword part, it's like, wow, is this like jihad evangelism? You know, trust Jesus or I'll kill you. I mean, why is he saying take a sword with him? And then why does he correct Peter for the way he uses the sword? And so you can see where people go bonkers with this. Now, we're in the South. We get the concept of taking a knife with you, right? <laughs> we do. I mean, godly people in the South. Amen? Right. I mean, concealed carry permits. I won't have you showed your hands, but I bet there's a more than one or two of you in here. For good reason, right? Mm, right there is, you know. <laughs> I'm clinging to my Bible and my gun, thank you very much. Proud of it. Runs deep in some of our veins. Think about it in a common sense situation. If you go into an environment where you're the only one without a sword on your hilt, you're a vulnerable person. If it's the common thing of the day to have some money on you, now you're a vulnerable person. Some provisions on you, wouldn't you like a defensive weapon on the side of your hip that just says, I'm like the rest of you all here in this environment when I'm traveling? Because in an entourage, there would be some that would have a sword on their hilt. And that's all it means. There's no more to the text. He's just saying, be smart. You're going into a context, be prepared. Have some food, have some money and you probably need to have a sword. It's not a license for them to go after people or to kill people. It's just a common sense concept. Be ready for hardship. Be ready for self-sacrifice. Now things are changing. I'm going to suffer and be killed and die and be buried. And in the meantime, you need to be wise. In verse 37, scripture is fulfilled. He quotes Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 12 
is the fragment he pulls from, he was numbered with the transgressors. For the Jew in the first century, they saw not a suffer. They, they cannot today see a suffering Messiah. When you talk to a Jewish person, they have a hard time. One of the hardest, if not the hardest concepts of Christianity is how could Jesus have died? How could he have been allowed to suffer like that? Because Israel was the suffering servant, not the Messiah. The Messiah was the exalted Savior. Israel was the suffering servant. They were the son of God. They were the ones in, in, uh, in, in slavery and in exile and living off the land and running from the Canaanites all their life. They were the ones who suffered, not Messiah. Messiah came to save them from suffering. So this is a mind bender for them. And he's saying here, he's numbered among the transgressors. He was one of the guilty. Messiah can't be guilty. He's perfect and innocent. He's reigning king. Well, what does he mean, of course? He'll be crucified besides two transgressors, two criminals, which, by the way, represent all mankind. If you're God, you need to do for me what I expect you to do. Be merciful to me, the sinner. All of mankind lines up on one side of the cross of the other. If you're God, you'd play this way. If you're God, you wouldn't do this. If you're God, you wouldn't have war. If you're God, you wouldn't allow AIDS. If you're God, you wouldn't let so-and-so be my boss. If you were God, you wouldn't let my husband leave me. Be merciful to me, the sinner. All mankind lines up on one side or the other. He's numbered among transgressors. He's going to die just like they did for our sins, for you, and for me. The last phrase, it is enough, is another one that Bible students have wasted lots of their lives wondering what it means. Um, I don't think Jesus is saying two is enough sword for the ten of us. I think he's changing the conversation. I think he's simply giving them a mild rebuke. This is enough of this conversation. Let's go. And off they go. The 11 closest friends on earth misunderstand many things. Of the 12, we have the betrayer, the son of perdition, who will betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and kill himself. On the other extreme, we have the denier, the denier who will deny his Lord, even though he's convinced he will not, and he will return and repent and come back, and he will certainly strengthen his brothers. So we're shown, even among the 12, the continuum of how they can respond to the opportunity of the gospel. Of all men, Peter had seen and experienced things that uh, all of them had. He'd walked on the water unlike the rest of them. He was involved in the great catch. He'd seen and experienced things no one else had seen. And he's still growing in his comprehension of who this Jesus is. Jesus will meet his fate alone. All of them will scatter. And he will die alone. And this is his final teaching. He will teach in his life, but this is his final teaching, the final words he gives us in Luke's record to the eleven. I want to go back at verse 37 as we wind up our time. Jesus says, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. That this which is written must be fulfilled in me. You hold in your hand a book that is not just a bestseller or a nice decoration for a bookcase, a cabinet, a credenza, or a coffee table you hold in your hand an otherworldly document. You hold in your hand the inspired, inerrant, complete counsel of God. 
you hold in your hand the very words God has spoken. You do not hold story and narrative and anecdote and proverb and song and psalm that are interesting and popular. You're holding God's word. And no matter what happens with the fiscal cliff, no matter what happens post-election, no matter what happens with Hamas and Israel, no matter what happens with the Egyptian Brotherhood, no matter what happens with your job, with your health or my health, no matter what happens with your marriage or your children or the economy, and no matter if America should have seen her last days and have been a great experiment for historians to write about, this will not change. It will be fulfilled. It cannot be stopped. It is the one place you can be confident in no matter what your experience tells you. God has spoken and he did not stutter. He has spoken and he did not mislead or misspeak. And Jesus' comment as he walks to die is, it must be fulfilled in me. Nothing, not even Satan's dominions, who think they're executing their winning blow, can thwart God's plan. Why is it important that you read the Scripture? To get more information about the Bible in your head? That's a good thing. It's important that you know the mind of God. If you want to know what God thinks, you need to know what he's written. Yeah, it's a little hard. Yeah, it's a little difficult. Yeah, sometimes it's dusty. Yes, yes, yes. But you know what? You've got a lifetime to dig into it. And nobody's keeping you from it yet. You can have three or eight or ten copies, and no one's going to stop you. Or in some countries, you can't have one. It will be fulfilled. Nothing will stop it.